Listen carefully. I am what I was. I was not what I am now. But now I am called both. So Jesus might have said of himself, fully God and fully man. Listen again. What I am, I was fully God, possessing all of the character qualities of divinity, omniscience, omnipotence, eternality. I was not what I am now, fully man, possessing all of the qualities of a man, save for sin. He ate and drank like a man. He mourned like a man. He was tempted like a man. So he is called in popular understanding Son of God, Son of Man. One website I explored this week highlighted 102 names for Jesus found in Scripture. There are others that argue there are many more. Particularly at this time of, of year, at Christmas time, it is most appropriate for us to look at the fullness of the names of Jesus because most all of the names describe his character and his being as the God-man. Those concepts are all balled up in one after, or one title, the title Emmanuel, God with us. This morning I am going to do something a little different. Um, I, I always um, exposit scripture, explain scripture. I, I, we, we look at, at the context of a particular verse or, or uh, a, a sentence or a, a, a paragraph, a chapter maybe. And, and any preacher that doesn't do that isn't worth your time. But this morning, in that discipline of looking at the scripture, I want to highlight five names of Christ. And you will find them in your hymnal in the Christmas hymn, Emmanuel. Um, I don't know what it is in your hymnal. I think it's, it might be number 87. Grab the hymnal in front of you. You're going to want to open to that hymn if it's not 87. It's 97, thank you. you you'll you'll want to just put that on the, on the pew next to you because I'm going to have you turn in some, uh, uh, some other uh, passages of Scripture where we're going to look at where do these names come from and, and what significance do they, do they have for us. Number 97 in your hymnal. We're going to look at these names of Jesus and in this order. Emmanuel, the rod of Jesse, the key of David, the desire of nations, and the day spring. 
All right? You with me so far? Now, before we look at the first, I need you to follow with me on a brief and um, specific survey of Israel's history. Now, there's, there's a reason for this, and I, and I trust that it will become very apparent in, in just moments. In Genesis chapter 15, God appears to the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. And the Lord has a number of things that he promises to Abraham, namely uh, descendants that are without number. But he says this, Genesis 15, verse 18, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. God promises the land that we call the Holy Land, we call the Promised Land, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey. There's a number of, 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 of uh, synonyms that we use to describe God's land that he gives to this particular group of people. But immediately is not when these people enjoy the benefit of this land. For very soon, uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family to that point go down and they live in Egypt. They are exiles, if you will, from the land to be given to them. They are held captive by the uh, Egyptians, for over 400 years. So they have this promise of, of being in this land, but they are in mourning because they are exiled elsewhere. Moses comes along. And Moses um, leads them to the promised land. They don't get into the promised land by Moses' hand, Joshua is the one who actually leads them into the land. But this is what Moses warned the people in anticipation of them inhabiting the land God was giving them. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 17. If your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. Next generation. Joshua, at the end of his life, says the same thing. Joshua chapter 23. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you, have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off of this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you will perish quickly from off of the good land which he has given to you. That was Israel's destiny. They rebelled against the Lord. They were indifferent toward the Lord. And so for centuries, while they lived in the land, 
God brought many other peoples to war against them to bring them back to himself. They were almost as though they were captives, exiles in their own land because they weren't in charge. Other ruling countries were. In 2 Kings chapter 18, we find the end of the northern tribes of Israel. The king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile. 2 Kings chapter 24, the same thing, a little more than a century later, happened to the southern tribe of Judah. Then the king of Babylon, chapter 24, verse 14, led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Here's Israel, granted this great honor and privilege to live in God's land. And yet because they would not live God's way, in God's land, he removed them. And so for many, many more years, they were mourning in the exile that they were living in. Look in your hymnal, verse 1. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. This title for Jesus, this name, Emmanuel, comes to us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 7 begins uh, telling us about uh, the impending doom upon the nation of Judah. The northern tribes of Israel have combined forces with the Syrians, called the Arameans in, uh, the, in the text. Uh, it's, uh, they were the forefathers of uh, present-day Syria. These, these two larger um, countries, armies, combined to, um, to, to pummel and to um, uh, pillage uh, the southern tribe of Judah. And they were, um, fr from all earthly points of view, they were going to succeed. They were f far more numerous in... Uh, um, in, in people, in armies, in horses, and all, all manners of warfare. And the king, Ahaz was his name. Um, he was the father of Hezekiah. He, he was, according to the scripture, um, a wicked, godless, um, uh, pagan man that was sitting on, on the throne of David. And the Lord came to Ahaz 
and said, Ahaz, you do not need to fear this horde that is coming against you because I am going to bring you and Jerusalem deliverance. Isaiah is the one who, who, uh, who brought this word. And in verse 11 of chapter 7, the Lord s- speaks um, through his prophet, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So the prophet speaking to the king says, King, the Lord is going to promise deliverance for, for you from this horde of, of uh, uh, enemies that is coming against you. And the Lord wants to assure you that he has the power to deliver on his promise. So, king, choose your own sign. What miracle do you want to see that will be your assurance that God is going to keep his promise and bring you deliverance? What do you want to see? Make it as, as, as deep as hell itself, as high as heaven. It really doesn't matter. Go ahead, king. No, no, really, no. What do you want to see? Name it. In a rather sanctimonious way, the king responds. Um, uh, verse 12. I, I, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Exclamation point. Well, okay, so the Lord says, okay, well then I'll give you my sign. Okay, here's your sign. Verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, if you have the New American Standard text like I do, God's version, um, you will notice that the word virgin might also be translated maiden. All right, before I continue, let me me insert um, this piece of information for you. If you're not familiar with uh, biblical prophecy, there is often two different fulfillments of a prophecy. Bible scholars will, will, will talk about the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. A near, near fulfillment is, is, is one that you can, you can see historically that takes place very close to the time that the prophecy is made. The far fulfillment is something that is, is out, away, and, and that might be uh, generations. It might be millennia. The, the, the near fulfillment is a, is, a, is, is a taste. It just gets our appetite wet for, for what is yet to come. What is yet to come is, is far greater, usually, in, in these kinds of situations. Well, the near fulfillment of this prophecy in chapter 7, verse 14, is found in the very next chapter. Verse 3. I... I approached the prophetess, that is, 
Isaiah is writing, and he's, he's saying, I approached my wife. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. And then the Lord said to me, Name him, oh, this poor child who has to figure out, how, how does a kindergarten learn how to spell this? Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Oh, my poor child. Meaning, um, uh, no, I'm, I'm continuing on. Name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy grows, knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Okay, so here, here's, here's, the, here's the prophecy. A maiden, I'm going to use that translation for a moment. A maiden is going to give birth to a child. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. And it's fulfilled, the near fulfillment, in the next chapter. Isaiah has normal relations with his wife. His wife becomes pregnant. She conceives, gives birth to the child, and the Lord tells him, don't name him Emmanuel. Name him Mehershal al-Hashbaz. Wait a minute. How is that a fulfillment of that prophecy in chapter 7? Remember, the sign was to uh, point out that God was going to keep his promise to Ahaz that Israel and the Arameans, um, finding their, their headquarters in uh, Samaria and Damascus, respectively, these two forces would not utterly destroy Judah, as was their intent. And the Lord says, here's my sign. I'm going to give a child. A child's going to be born. And before that child is able to say, Mama or Dada, I'm going to show you my deliverance. And, here it is, God will be with you, Emmanuel. And for the sake of, of uh, his education in kindergarten, he's going to have to learn how to spell Meher Shahal Hashbaz. The far fulfillment is what we see in Jesus. And here, legitimately, the Hebrew word can be translated maiden. It also can be translated virgin. Here's the, the, the far fulfillment. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, just as the Isaiah's baby was called Meher Shalal Heshbaz, so the baby of Mary was called Jesus. And yet he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the perfect God-man, fully God, fully man. And it happened in this incredibly unusual way. We, we don't think that, that 
um, the, the, the normal relationship between a, a husband and a wife sexually um, that brings forth a child is, is any, I mean, that, that, that happens all the time. What, what, what kind of miracle is that? I mean, we, we see a baby and we say, oh, it's such a miracle. No, no, it's a, that's the way God has made it. And when Isaiah and his wife had a child, there wasn't anything miraculous there. What was miraculous was before the child was able to say, Mama or Dada, how long does that take place? A short period of time, huh? Uh, less than a year. Or maybe more for some children. All right? Um, within, that same, within, within that period of time, Israel and Syria would be taken off into captivity by the Assyrian, different group of people, and Judah would be spared. Um, in the far fulfillment, a woman who had never had relations with a man would become pregnant. What? Biologically, that can't happen. I mean, even in our medically um, given age, there, there has to be sperm in an egg. Not in this case. Virgin, as a child, bears a son. He is God with us. Read the first verse with me of our hymn. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. You're supposed to read with me. That mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Second name we find in verse 2. And you'll find that uh, that name, the Rod of Jesse. That's the King James translation of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. If you turn there, over there with me, in Isaiah 11, um, the, uh, the, the people of Israel are, ha have been brought low. Their, their, their exile continues, and the threat of exile uh, continues. Uh, at that point, um, Ahaz, wicked king Ahaz, joins forces with his son, Hezekiah. As, as, as low as Ahaz was spiritually, Hezekiah was just the opposite. Hezekiah was... was after David's heart, after God's heart, they were two spiritual opposites. They had a co-regency together. And you'll remember that in Hezekiah's time, the Assyrians came after Judah. They exiled Israel in 722 B.C., they came upon Israel in 701 B.C. Hezekiah was the chief king at that time. 
and the, 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 the spiritual ebb of the, of the, of the country was, was such that uh, there was, um, um, the, the people were feeling oppressed. They, they were feeling as though they were, they were under a, um, a, a tyrannical government namely the, uh, the, the Assyrians, there was uh, the, a, a feeling, even, even the smell of death for the country. And here in chapter 11, verse 1, it, uh, it, it speaks in, in the New American Standard of, of a shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse. Of course, Jeffy, Jesse is the father of David. So, so there is there is this 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 thinking that that uh, the nation of of uh, uh, of Judah is is headed toward where where Israel was, and they were carted off by the Assyrians, and the people of Judah thought the same was going to happen to them. They felt as though they were. Uh, oppressed, and uh, death was upon them. They felt like they were the the dry stump that was there. There was there was no there was no life left in in the um, uh, the, the 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 stump of Jesse. But here, this prophecy says that a shoot will spring forth. Old King James language: a rod will spring forth. There will be life. And this one, who is the rod of Jesse, or the shoot of Jesse, this one will bring life. He will, he will um, re- restore that which is no longer there. He brings deliverance. Re- read the second verse with me. Hymn number seven or 97. O come, Thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Second page of your notes. The third name of Jesus, the key of David, comes from Isaiah chapter 22. If you turn there with me, you'll find in verse 15, the name of a gentleman, Shibna is his name, who was the steward of Hezekiah's house. Now, now this, this one who is a steward is the one who is over the household, he, he, is, he is the chief official that has power and authority over all things having to do with uh, the, the, the health and the prosperity of the king and his household. So he's responsible for what the king eats and what his wives eat and what his children eat and what his staff members eat. And he's responsible for what they all drink. And he is responsible for what time they get to bed. And he's responsible for when their doctor appointments are. And what kind of laundry detergent they're going to use this week. 
He's responsible for all of these things. This gentleman in verse 15 is a poor steward. And he's being removed because he was unfaithful in his stewardship. Verse 20, the Lord has another man to serve Hezekiah. And his name is Eliakim. And the prophecy goes like this. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic, O king, and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I shall set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. This man that was to come, Hilkiah, or Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, he was, he was going to be a man of great responsibility and he would responsibly carry out his charge. He would take care of the king, take care of, 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 of all of the king's people. He would be the one to protect them and to provide for them. And he had on his shoulder the king, uh, the key. And that king was, that key was going to give him access to the, uh, the authority and the resources of the realm. He was going to be able to do anything he needed to do to protect the king's people. This man, Eliakim, was a type of Christ. Just as Eliakim was, was given great authority, so the Christ would be given great authority. He would be the chief steward over all of the king's people. And he would provide for them in every way. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, Jesus says this of himself, verse 7. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Jesus is the key of David. He not only possesses this power and authority to open the doors of heaven and provide for his people in every way, he is that key. Verse 4 in our Christmas hymn. Read it with me. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path of misery. What he opens will stay open. What he shuts, it will stay shut. 
the glories and the treasures of heaven are ours through Christ. He takes care of the king's kids. And that which brings misery, pain, anguish, those things he will he will he, he will close the door and lock it on the other side of us. Third, or rather the the fourth um, uh, the fourth name of Christ that we find in uh, this particular Christmas hymn, the desire of nations comes from the book of Haggai, chapter two. Find that book. I dare you. Find that book. <laughs> oh, it's just uh, it, it's it's third from the uh, the old the uh, New Testament, you can find it that way. Or you can look in the, the um, uh, table of contents. That's okay. It's a short book. It's only two chapters, 38 verses in total. It, it is a summation, a truncated series of four sermons. Wow, have you ever heard of a preacher being that Short-winded? My, my. Haggai chapter 7. Chapter 2, verse 7, sorry. Um, this particular verse, according to Hebrew scholars, is the most difficult verse to translate in all of this book. Well, great. Let's dive in. I'm going to read it first. Whoops. I forgot to bring it with me. Um... Who has, who has King James? Jack, would you read verse 7 for us? Please. Thank you. The desire of nations will come. You heard that. Now, let me read it in the New American Standard Translation. And you'll wonder, these can't be sisters. Here's how it reads. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. How is it that they're translating this from the same Hebrew verse? King James reads, The desire of nations will come. And as translates it, They, the nations, will come with the wealth of nations. Well, the tension here comes from the fact that we have a singular noun and a plural verb. Now that's not tremendously unusual in Hebrew. And there are some um, scholars that will say, uh, Haggai did this intentionally. He intentionally brought ambiguity in order to make his point. 
So what's his point? Okay, a little bit of background here. Haggai was a post-exilic prophet, meaning after the people of Israel were allowed to go back to their homeland following Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon's exilic departure, when they were allowed to come back to, to uh, the land, uh, they were given a little bit of money from the the uh, um, Persian government to rebuild the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had knocked the temple flat. He was so angry at the Jews for their rebellion. And he, he destroyed the Salmonic temple, temple built by Solomon. So they go back to the land, and God instructs the, the returned exiles, rebuild the temple. And the people started and quickly gave up. Well, they ran out of money, and they didn't have the same kind of skill to rebuild the temple like it was in Solomon's day. And so the Lord sent his prophet Haggai, and through a series of four sermons, he urged the people, pressed the leadership, get back to work, get the temple built. Just do it, guys. Well, um, in, in, uh, in, in verse 3, Haggai asks his audience, chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how, does it, how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison now, you have to realize that, that um, the, the, the temple that Solomon built was ornate. It was extravagant. Forget for just a moment who it was intended to honor. Just as an edifice, just as a building, just as a structure, it was awe-inspiring. It was it was covered in gold. And when a traveler came from, from the east, um, they, they, would, they would come up over the Mount of Olives and they would look down on the city of Jerusalem. And there would, there would be the temple of, of, of God in, in all of its radiant glory. And, and as, as the sun maybe, maybe came up over them, uh, they, they would see, reflecting back, the, the brilliance of the sun shining off of the gold of that temple. It was amazing. Or so I'm told. I've not seen it yet. I'm waiting for the video to come out when I get to heaven. So he asks the, the, uh, the oldsters that are there, you were here when you were children. And you saw the temple before Nebuchadnezzar flattened it. And now we are back, 70 years later. And you see the, 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 the modest um, footprint that we have for a building here. What, what, what do you think so far? 
And there was this groan in the back row. They saw the former glory. And what, what, they were, what they were seeing before them right now was nothing. Nothing in comparison. In that context, verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. They will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now it appears as though from the reading of this text, particularly in verse 7, that the Lord is going to stir up the nations around Israel and they are going to provide for the glory of this building, the temple. Well, and historically we can see that, that when uh, Herod the Great in the first century B.C., first century A.D., that's what he, he started it in the B.C. era, um, he, he was uh, remodeling this temple in an extravagant way. Um, so, so much so that you can, you can see the, uh, the, the foundation that he laid millennia ago, even to this day. Now, uh, Herod um, was in part funded by the Roman government. And where did Rome get their, their money? Well, from conquered peoples that they uh, took over. So it was the wealth of the nations that helped fund the rebuilding of the Second Temple. But the Lord says the, the glory later is going to be greater than the glory before. There's going to be something else greater here. We're, we're not just talking about a building here. There's, there's a dispute whether we should translate that, that single noun um, uh, desire, as it is in King James, or wealth, as it's translated in the New American Standard. Um, the uh, ESV, RSV, both use a, a plural noun, and they, they use the word treasures. It was in, um, uh, in, in Jewish antiquity. The rabbis thought that this was a messianic verse. And so did uh, the, the Latin fathers, like Jerome, for example. Uh, so did the medieval church. Um, Roman Catholic Church saw this as, as a messianic prophecy. Uh, so did the reformers. Um, 
so did the authors of, uh, or the translators of the King James Bible. They, they, they saw verse 7 as messianic. That, that we're not just talking about a physical structure. We're not talking about an edifice that would be glory in, uh, that would reflect glory in its, um, in its standing. And many modern scholars think this is not messianic. I think it is. Um, we, we, are, we are talking about that which is most valuable and most precious. That's what unites these two uh, apparently disparate views of translating verse 7. The wealth of nations, that which is most valuable, that which is deemed to be most precious, most desirable is not a building but it's a person who comes and works in such a way that he brings peace to the nations verse 5 in our Christmas hymn read it with me O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. Fifth description of the Lord is uh, to, to call him the day spring. And the text of Scripture from which we get this is in Luke chapter 1. You remember that uh, Luke 1, after the introduction, opens up with the story of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. Now they would be the parents of a boy named John, surnamed the Baptist, and uh, you, you remember that when the angel came to Zacharias and said, um, the Lord's got a, a plan for you, buddy. Your wife, though she is an elderly woman at this point, though she has been barren all of her days, she is going to conceive and give birth to a son. And old man Zacharias chortled <laughs> yeah uh-huh yeah right well because he was a doubtful man and did not have faith in the word of the lord through the angel his mouth was shut he could not speak for nine months until the child was born and when the child was born he agreed with what the angel instructed him to do um, we're going to call him John. As soon as that was determined, the Lord gave him his voice back, and he uttered a word of prophecy about John. Verse 76 of Luke 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways 
to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. That word translated in the uh, NAS, um, sunrise, is the same word translated in the King James, day spring. It denotes from the east, a rising from the east, specifically of things like uh, moon, stars, um, the sun. Hence, this title of Jesus, he is, he is the sunrise. He is the day spring. He is the light that shines in the world. And as we've been going through uh, the fourth gospel here, uh, so far this calendar year, we have looked a couple of times at passages where Jesus talks about himself as being the light of the world, the one who chases darkness away. In the second chapter of, of uh, Luke's gospel, um, in uh, the middle of that particular chapter, we find Jesus in the temple with his parents, uh, Joseph and Mary take the child to the temple in order to be circumcised on the eighth day. And while they are there, they find this old man named Simeon. And Simeon takes the child in his arms and lifts the baby Jesus up to heaven. And he says these words, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant, speaking of himself, to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus is that light, the light of revelation. He is the day spring. He is the sunrise. The third verse wraps up this particular Christmas hymn. Read it with me. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. And drive away the shades of night and pierce the clouds and bring us light. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Oftentimes it's uh, the old dead guys that have the, the, um, the best way with words. Octavius Winslow wrote this a century and a half ago. How near are you, O Lord, clothed with my very flesh? What? Did you stoop to my humanity? Did you take up into union with your deity my poor, inferior nature? Were you bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? Did this my nature, so diseased, paralyzed, so tortured, so nervous, weak and trembling, that which oftentimes I sigh to lay down as a burden I can no longer bear, did this same nature veil as with a garment? Your deity, my Lord? 
how near you have brought forth yourself to me. Truly, you are God with me. You are God in me. You are Emmanuel. This one who is the rod of Jesse, the key of David, who frees us from the depths of hell and opens wide heaven's doors. This one who is the desire of nations, the most precious, the only one who can bring world peace. This one who is uh, the day spring that shines, in, uh, shines as light in the world. He brings us light. This one is Emmanuel, God with us. With us in our suffering, with us in our pain, with us in our joys, with us in our temptation, with us in our death. Listen to these words by Isaac Watts as he captures the glory of God became man. Dearest of all the names above, my Jesus and my God, who can resist thy heavenly love or trifle with thy blood? Tis by the merits of thy death the Father smiles again. Tis by thine interceding breath the Spirit dwells with men. Till God in human flesh I see, my thoughts no comfort find. The holy, just, and sacred three are terrors to my mind. But if Emmanuel's face appear, my hope, my joy begins. His name forbids my slavish fear. His grace removes my sins. While Jews on their own law rely and Greeks of wisdom boast, I love the incarnate mystery and there I fix my trust. Blessed God, we are so unworthy to receive any of your kindness and your goodness toward us in Christ. And yet out of your great love with us, for us, even while we were still sinners, Christ came, Christ lived, and Christ died. We are unworthy of such activity. But it is purely because of your mercy and your grace that you shower that upon us. We owe you our worship and our praise, indeed our very lives. Find us to be faithful to you, Father. We pray this in the name of the Savior.